We'll start off by, a, a, I think, a, a surprising, interesting, intriguing uh, Talmudic statement. And the Talmud says that we know there's a lot of mitzvahs in the Torah, and all of them are very, very, very important. But there's one mitzvah that is equal to all the other mitzvahs combined. And what's that? Living in the land of Israel. And in fact, I'll tell you guys a little secret, that there are seven mitzvahs that the Talmud declares upon them that they are equal to all the other mitzvahs combined, which is a problem, because if, if, if one mitzvah is equal to all of them combined, including all those combined, are the other six which we label as being equal to all the other mitzvahs combined. So that's an important uh, question. But either way, there's seven mitzvahs. We'll quickly go through them. Torah study, living in the land of Israel, Shabbat, Circumcision, tzitzit, fringes, oh, okay. uh, let's see, charity, and the last one is, what's the last one? Oh, rejecting, rejecting uh, idolatry. And in fact, my grandfather wrote an entire book, which is two sections and two different paths to understanding this, these seven mitzvahs. Very interesting. So like, for example... We see perfection of body is, is, is represented by the circumcision, right, where the body was not perfect, now it's perfect. Perfection of the mind is study Torah. Torah cleanses the mind. Time is Shabbat. Space is Israel. Then all someone's positive characteristics are, uh, are, are, are represented by, uh, by charity, when someone does good for other people. Uh, then uh, our memory is linked to our tzitzit. And lastly, our priorities are rejecting idolatry. So essentially, everything that we want to achieve, like to encapsulate a man, to, uh, to in- envelop a man in greatness, are personified by these seven areas of perfection that they need to attain. And each one of these mitzvahs were representative of a, a whole class of mitzvahs whose, whose job collectively is to perfect man. But either way, one of those is living in the land of Israel, and it's equal to all other mitzvahs combined, which should make us... I guess before we even start, realize that there's something really special about, you know, it's not just a convenient place to live that has, you know, low property taxes and, you know, decent weather. So Mike asked me, because we hear this very often, what is the true meaning when someone talks about going to Israel, they say, you are going to have an aliyah. So what would be your... So aliyah, the word aliyah means ascension, going up. And we know that in the Talmud, it always talks about Israel. Several places in the Talmud mentions that Israel is the highest of all lands. Now, I don't know if that means topographically, um, if it's just high, it's like higher than Mount Kilimanjaro. It doesn't seem like it, like a sea level. But it means that on a spiritual level, there's something very spiritual. It's a place that is 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 ripe for spiritual greatness. And we'll get to a little bit more about. But that, that that's what it means when you make Aliyah. It means you're you're ascending, so to speak. To Israel, like this is the t- this you know this is the top of the mountain, so to speak, and thus you're going up to Israel as opposed to when you would leave, you're going down. So in fact, uh, there's a, there's there's about a million Israelis that are Yordim, which means that they go down, descending, which means that they live outside of Israel. That's you know, it's like if you go to any mall, you see Yordim, people that left Israel and moved yeah. to the diaspora. I have a question. If living in Israel is a big myth, for what are you? Doing? Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking the same. It's a good question. What are, yeah, what are we all doing? Yeah, and that, that's a that's a that's a very important question. I think it's it's going to be one of the big indictments on our generation. Just like, and I'm skipping a little bit ahead, but in the times of Ezra, 
uh, when he led the uh, repatriation toward Israel, all he brought was 42,000 people. Mm-hmm. And you would think that, you know, if you were exiled from the land, and you're so depressed about it, and you're sitting on the rivers of Babylon, and you're crying about it, and now finally you have the right to go back, and people say, you know what, it's better in Babylon. So it's kind of interesting that, uh, that Israel is something that we've strived for, for for millennia, and it's part of our prayers, and it's at the forefront of Jewish consciousness. It's all about Jerusalem, 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 rebuilding the temple, going back to Israel, our land, land, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like that's, you know, and finally have the opportunity on a silver platter, and we're like, ah, I kind of like it here, you know? Yeah, you know, it's it's more comfortable here. And and, and that's almost always true. Um, And we'll see that throughout the history, that it's not always very, very comfortable, very pleasant in Israel. Uh, Because it's never comfortable, greatness is never comfortable. Because greatness, by definition, means overcoming resistance. It's not fun, but it's greatness. But uh, I was told that God is not just in Israel, He's everywhere. So why would Israel be the only place that God is Who found? said that? Did I say that? Yeah. But you said... We're in political season. I'm being misquoted. I never said that. I said yeah. it's the place that's most primed for spiritual goodness. But of course, if someone is sitting in Sugarland, oh, Texas, yeah. and they study Torah, what does the mission say? The mission says, Hashem Imo, the Almighty is with them. So we're, we're studying Torah here. The Almighty's with us. Right? That's, that's what it says. I have verses I can prove of you. Right? I got sources. Uh, I got I got I got literature that is thousands of years old that backs up that statement. However, the fact that Israel is most primed for spiritual greatness and a place where we can most nurture our relationship with God, that's uh, certainly true. But your question is a good question. It's it's a yeah. damning question. Yeah. It's like, what, well, dude? What are you doing here? You know, and it's it's a hard question to answer. <laughs> He embarrassed you. Right? He did, and I. Uh, but I, uh, but I'm, uh, I'm. 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 I'm grateful for it. <laughs> but I lived in Israel for ten years. I don't know, but uh, yeah. But if you were there, if you were in Israel, if all the you know, there would be no other people to help the other Jews that are in another land. Right. So I could have defended myself by saying, "Hey." Some of us who have dropped. Yeah, who have dropped? We don't know. So if everybody learned that Jew is in Israel, and all the people who are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they won't know what to do because y'all aren't here. So, so that's why I'm here. Thank yeah. you. No, that's <laughs> no, but it's right. It's right. And in fact, and in fact, I know, I know people uh, that would say that there's there's actually a halacha, the Jewish law, that you cannot leave Israel for, unless you're going either for uh, financial purposes, you can't make a living there, mm-hmm. uh, for health reasons, uh, or for spiritual reasons. Like if you're going to contribute, if you're going, to, if if you're if you if you have a position in a rabbinate in Antwerp. And you're going to say, oh, well, I can't leave Israel. Well, no, you should. This isn't a case where you should leave. There's some cases where you should, like, or to get, you know, to get married. So, like, listen, I'm, I'm in a corner in Israel, and, I, and, I don't, and all I see is Israelis, you know, and I can never get married, but I'm not leaving Israel. No, that's not the right attitude. So, yes, uh, there are times where we, we ought to leave Israel. But n- that notwithstanding, Israel is the place that is most primed for spiritual greatness. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. You said the, those are the seven mitzvahs to make it. No, no, no. I said those are the seven different categories of greatness, and these seven mitzvahs are personifications, you know, archetypes of those seven categories. So there's a lot of mitzvahs that that deal with with time, like all the holidays. Um, but Shabbat is is the is the quintessential. Two of those address man only. No, they, well, well, that's 
So that's, that's it. So which which we could say we could we could twist in two ways. Either we could say, well, men need more perfection than women do, which is not an untrue statement. Sorry for giving you a double negative. No, but that, I understand that. I'm just or saying, or when we learn about these mitzvahs, like I we I have a whole class that I prepared on circumcision, and once you hear about what circumcision is really about, uh, it's it's not limited to just a mere uh, function that happens when a child's eight days old, because you know what? A child eight days old, is not, there's no greatness there either. So you'll say, oh, one of your seven sections, right? 16%, or sorry, 14% of, 14 and change, 14% of your entire structure is, is for babies that are a week old. Is that what you're trying to tell me? That there's 14% of Torah is relegated to babies? No, of course not. There's a mitzvah that is done to babies, but the ideas behind the mitzvahs, the meaning, the insight, the understanding, the five reasons that I collected, and there's maybe even more reasons, of why we do circumcision and how it relates to our mission at life and why it's so central and why it's the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people and why it's the mitzvah that has been most banned for the Jewish people and why it is linked to us being a chosen nation, why it's the mitzvah given to Abraham. All those things are not relegated to the baby or the man. It's for the nation. So your question is, why is it only performed? Well, the mother performs it, you know, in her way, and you know, and, and even even adults, we don't perform it. Like it happened to us. You know, we 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 were crying. We weren't happy about it at the time, right? Uh, but it happens to us when, during the first week of life. So there's obviously something which is beyond the mere function of the circumcision that is the meaning behind the mitzvah. Make sense? Yeah, but I was just stressing that again. It's yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. I wrote down what you were saying. I came up with six. Torah study, living in Israel, no adultery, uh, charity. charity, Shabbat, and Sisi. Hey, what? Circumcision. Circumcision. I had missed it too until he just asked the Sorry. question there. How about the tefillin? No. No, not in this list. Tefillin. Phylacteries. It's like a word that was in, invented like in the... I don't know where they came from. Phylacteries? And it was like, what's tefillin? Oh, phy- oh phylacteries. Oh. You know? So I was like, is there anyone who knows what phylacteries is but doesn't know what tefillin is? I, I doubt that. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about Israel. What's so special about Israel? So I, I, I have a thought uh, that's kind of, you know, not just, it, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an entrance into an entire realm of thinking that Judaism and the Torah uh, kind of pioneered. Um, so we talk about religion, we talk about spirituality, we talk about the soul, we talk about doing what's right, what's moral, we talk about God, and we talk about essentially this idea of free will, wherein someone has options and someone has choices to make. And there's something which is, you know, lasting, like the soul, the soul, you can never destroy a soul. And then there's the body, which gets put in the ground and it evaporates, essentially. Uh, and the choices that we make are, are we, are we going to choose what is the easier choice, what is the more immediate choice, or are we going to invest kind of in the future? Uh, so that's obviously, a, a, you know, a, a common theme amongst all, I guess, structures of, of, of religion and morality. Now, the Jewish innovation, I would say, perhaps, or one of the great Jewish innovations is the idea of, the idea of holiness. Uh, and... And holiness is not uh, asceticism. It's not refraining 
from engaging in the physical world. Rather, it's the idea of taking that that could be mundane, that that could be physical, that could be material, and uplifting it, and making it great. Thus, uh, when we drink a bottle of water, have a coffee, or you know, eat pizza, right? So that is something that we need to do for continuity, for nourishment, to stay alive. And that's something that Jews do, and non-Jews do, and animals do, and it's, 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 a, it's a human or a life function. It's not something spiritual. However, we have this idea of making a blessing. You make a blessing on the food, but why are you suddenly interjecting spiritual pursuits into something which is physical? It doesn't make any sense. It should be that, no, this is something which is physical, and that is one, one part of our lives. And then there's the spiritual, like this Torah study and prayer and doing kindness. Like that is where the soul, uh, soul's agenda is relegated to. That's a good question. And we find that with, with almost everything. You know, we have in our door, part of our construction is we put a mezuzah on the door. Like you're building a house now. You're like, I, you're thinking about how to have the most functional house, how to have nice windows that give you nice air and light. And suddenly you're like, oh, we have to do what's Jewish about it. We have to put something by the door. You know? In Judaism, we believe that there's this overlap. There's this touch point between the spiritual and the physical world. It's not separate. Right? We take the spiritual and we infuse the physical with meaning. That's why so much of our mitzvahs are about action. You know, even this week's Parsha, we talked about it this morning in, in Beth, in, in Beth Shurin. This week's Parsha is about, we do the red heifer, the mitzvah of the red heifer. Now, without getting into all the details, because I want to finish talking about Israel, but it's a very bizarre mitzvah, and we do it because we do it, not because we understand it. And it's essentially telling us that the mitzvahs are about us doing things, physical things, engaging our body in the mitzvah. Why? Because when we do that, when we uplift the body, we purify the body, we cleanse the body, we make it a little bit more spiritual. <coughs> so that's the Jewish idea. Uh, I say maybe one of the great Jewish innovations. Israel is kind of the same thing. You go to Israel and you see, what do you see? You see traffic police. You see crosswalks. You see mountains. You see buildings. You see uh, uh, carbon-emitting cars. And you say... This is what everyone's fighting over? This? <coughs> yeah, it's an nice land, okay. You know, it has uh, a very wide variety of seasons. You have snow, <laughs> and then you have desert within a few hours from each other, which is, I guess, cool, interesting. Uh, it's nice. It's not necessarily nicer than the United States. I would make that argument. You know, we, it's a pretty nice country we have here today. What is so special about Israel? What's this big deal that we have about us? And you know what? On a physical level, if it was just about that, the answer is nothing. It's a land like any other land. And in fact, you look at the neighbors and how much oil they have, you're like, goodness, we couldn't just direct it like <laughs> five <laughs> degrees east. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be convenient? Yeah. But on a physical level, it's, it's really not. Uh, and you can't necessarily see it. But what Israel does have is that it has this touch point wherein the land is holy. You can't see it. You can't measure it. It's not empirical. But that's the idea behind Israel. And it's this touch point with the, with, with the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Thus, merely living in Israel is a mitzvah. You take four steps, every four steps taken in Israel is another mitzvah, which is mind-blowing. Like, you just go on a hike, and it's a spiritual land that you're treading upon. And the more you see about it, the more you appreciate it, the more mitzvahs you get. 
Because this is, despite being physical, you're eating an apple, it's a mitzvah, which is an incredible idea, an incredibly deep insight. Now, these benefits come with, I would say, some conditions. Uh, For example, we look in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18, it has this entire section about Moses warning the Jewish people not to mess with the land of Israel. It doesn't mean, like, don't litter. Even though that's a nice thing as well, not to litter anywhere, but certainly not in Israel. I remember my, if, if like as kids, if we were in Israel and we would litter, she's like, my, my mother would say, how could you, how could you litter in, in, in Holy Jerusalem? Uh, but Moses tells him, listen, this is a great place. It's fantastic. It's a place most suited for greatness. And we are the nation most suited for greatness. It's a match made in heaven. Perfect. However, once we deviate from the path, so to speak, and we do things that are repulsive to Israel, to the land of Israel. Remember, it's a spiritual land. The land itself, this is the, the wording of the verses, it will vomit you out of it. It's as if that the land itself has this immune system in which it repels uh, adversaries, which is an incredible, you read this, what it says in the verse. The land itself, it will, it will vomit you out, throw you out. So the central telling us, yes, it is a wonderful land. However, it is a land, like I said, it's spiritual, but therefore it has spiritual sensitivities. And if you're not cognizant of that, and you kind of make a departure from what it feels comfortable with, well, then you'll have to deal with the consequences. And as we know, we could mark the ups and downs of Jewish settlement in Israel very closely to the same graph that we could do as to whether the Jewish people are actually living the way they ought to, which is, wow. which is mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, and that's hopefully one of the things that we'll do today is also highlight the different, the different times in which uh, the Jewish people are going to settle. Uh, the settlement in Israel was you know, harmonious amongst each other. Mm-hmm. There was no infighting, no discord no uh, sectarianism. Uh, There was a dedication to Torah, uh, a a rejection of idolatry, and then there was tremendous peace, prosperity, and stability. And then when you have different groups descending into idolatry or to infighting or to Hellenism or all those different groups, and suddenly you have, within a couple of years, the Gentiles coming in and making rules and exile and expulsion and you know, terrible consequences. And we actually see, now, now we, with the gift of history, we actually can look back and actually map out the times in which the Jewish people were flourishing and in Israel and link that to the times, you know, uh, in which they were behaving in the way that the Torah says uh, Israel is amenable to. Dave. Rabbi, so tell me, in your opinion, why it took so long to get back there. Why did we have to wait for Herzl and the Zionist movement in order it didn't have to, it's just... Why did we wait so long? Well, that's a good question, you know. Um, it's a very good question. Um, we got, we got I, I don't, expelled I, every other place and we never made it back there. I, I think that it was, it was so beyond habitable, you know. Uh, it was so inhab- inhabitable for so long. But I also think that it was... It was I think there's the, you know there's the political answer to that, and then there's the, actually the spiritual answer to that. So I'd rather hit the spiritual. So my my thoughts would be is that Israel itself was you know as the Torah foretells by the way all these things are foretold in the Torah that the people will be kicked out of Israel and they'll come back to Israel. 
Uh, and the Torah foretells that the coming back to Israel is going to be connected to a coming back to Torah at large. Um, so I, I think that there's certain patterns in history that have to kind of follow in order for the uh, rejuvenation of Israel as the land and Israel as the people to kind of unite. Okay. Uh, what about the Israeli borders? Yeah, so borders... Israel, and now you got borders that are... Well, the, bo- the border, the biblical borders are, in fact, wider uh, and, and shorter. It's like boxier than it is, it is today. Because um, we know that the, the Israel's, a biblical Israel's borders was Transjordan as well. Uh, but it wasn't as far as south, so a lot might not be in, in biblical Israel. That's why, like, to, like in these, this year is the year of the Shemitah. The agricultural laws are in place. Thus, produce that has grown in a lot, it's not so much produce grown in a lot, but theoretically that would not be part of Shemitah laws because that's not part of biblical Israel. And also far north as, as well, it's not part of biblical Israel. Yeah, so there's, there's, some, there's some questions about that. So is that observed that way right now during the Shemitah year? Are, yeah, well, the there's, there's some debate exactly as to how far down did the, did the, did the actual borders end. I mean, what's so there's a big the discussion. There's there's, you know. there's books and books and books written about this subject. Um, there's a lot of scholarship about it because it's also it's not so clear. Maybe if it was cut and dried, it is cut and dried. But it talks about cities and go figure out where that city was. Yeah, uh, you yeah, know, yeah. three thousand years ago. Good luck. Um, you know, so that's uh, interesting. You know, we know Jericho was was an excellent fit. Jericho was because it was the first uh, uh, civil modern civilizations. But I mean, practice cities. today. Do you but to it goes further south. On? Yeah. So. So uh, there's there's different obscurity. different opinions. There are those opinions that say anything that's part of modern day Israel is part of Israel with regards to the laws of Shemitah, and therefore we don't eat, we don't we don't cultivate that land. Uh, can I ask a quick during the Shemitah? What what are they doing? Uh, well, they're making a living. Uh, so they the, what are the farmers doing? Or yeah, they what are they doing? Crops. No, but they can't grow anything. They can't grow anything. That's right. So, so, um, <laughs> so how, how are they supposed to survive? I, 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 uh, well, the, what the Torah says is that they'll have a bumper crop every sixth yeah, year, right. which and they all seem to survive. And every every shemitah, there are more and more farmers that are joining, uh, becoming shemitah observers. Every single every single cycle, there's more and more people that are that are uh, that are observing this seem to seemingly very difficult law. But it uh, seems like all the laborers and stuff. I mean, I mean, I could understand maybe the owners being able to withstand a year. But what about all the laborers that work? Yeah, so that's what you know. What, what, you know, I, I think most of the laborers are actually uh, foreign laborers. Oh, yeah. No, it's yeah. it's, it's true. <laughs> oh uh, but God. they, like the old kibbutzim, it might be the exception. The old kibbutzim, mm-hmm. where they were, you know, they were more kind of agricultural. Uh, but they have other there's factories as well they could work in. They I don't know make belts or undershirts or whatever. I was just curious. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I don't know the exact details. Yeah. So they work in the hotels? Uh, but they also, they're also um, like um, international efforts to, to provide financial aid to farmers and people who work on farms. International effort. They raise millions and millions and millions of dollars. I don't know if it's more than people make. I assume we find out as much as people make you know, working, but it's, it's a tremendous, tremendous effort. But like I said, every year, there's every every seven years, there's more and more farmers that are observing it. Uh, either way, so uh, it's just a few more cute little insights before we get started into the history. Uh, Rashi, on the first Rashi in the Torah, tells us that, re- that the reason why we have the Book of Genesis 
Right? If Torah is about laws and the laws only start essentially in Exodus, he asks the question, well, why do we have the whole laws of Genesis? You know why? Because if the Gentiles come and say, oh, you guys are living in our land, we, we, we show them that, no, we have Genesis and the story of Abraham and Abraham being promised the land of Israel. This is our deed to the land. So essentially we're saying the entire book of Genesis, 20% of the Torah, is all there about Israel. Interesting idea. We know that there are 130 mitzvahs that are only valid in Israel. Sacrificial laws, agricultural laws, right? uh, religious laws, um, ritualistic laws that only apply in Israel, which is interesting. And another thing, my grandfather pointed this one out, is that we know the Jewish people left Egypt, they had 49 days to prepare for Torah. And we know Torah is very expansive, very exhaustive. Yet they had 40 years to prepare for going to Israel. So what essentially we, we see is that the preparation needed for readying oneself for this wonderful mitzvah is even more exhaustive than the preparation we might need for receiving the Torah, which is a mind-boggling thought. Okay, so let's, uh, let, let, let's fast forward to a point in time where the Jewish people uh, are on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, Moses is about to die. Joshua is going to lead them into the land of Israel. Who's there? So the Torah references these seven nations that were there. And we know from, uh, from the later books that there were actually 31 different city-states in the land of Israel. Essentially, uh, uh, each one of these states was a, a self-contained, uh, I guess, a tribe uh, in part one of those seven big tribes, but a self-contained entity, a civilization. Uh, they were, uh, for the next 400 years, before the Jewish people captured the entire land of Israel, for the next 400 years, uh, once they settle in Israel, they're going to be in constant conflict with these various tribes and various city-states. Uh, and as we know, when they get into the land of Israel, so it takes them seven years to capture, seven years to allocate the land of Israel, and after 14 years, they finally settled down. Now, they don't have Jerusalem. They don't have a temple. They don't have a king. There's no king for 400 years. The first king we'll meet is the king, king Saul. No king, no king of the land. Who's the leader? The leader of the time is a fellow by the name of Joshua. Right? But Joshua is the first of the judges. So if you look at the book of Joshua in the Bible, it's followed by the book of Judges which tells us the entire history of those 400 years that happened until the first king, who was anointed by Samuel, the last of the judges. So these are names we're familiar. We heard of Joshua, we heard of Samuel. From Joshua to Samuel, you have 393 years, in which the leaders of the people were 16 judges. One of them, by the way, was a female, right? Uh, Deborah, as we know. We were progressive ahead of our time to have uh, women leaders. Uh, why? Because it was a meritocracy, and if she was the most uh, able in leading the people, she was the leader. So she was one of those 16, Samson, Gideon, all these great Jewish leaders were part of those group. Now, as we all know, if there is no monarch, if there's no government form aside from the spiritual leadership, there's going to be problems. And we find during this time lots of episodes of weak leadership uh, or ineffectual leadership uh, some infighting amongst these the Jewish tribes as we know the Jewish people were separated into 12 tribes each one of them had its own land so essentially you had uh, concurrently the entire Jewish nation as one 
yet they all lived amongst people from their own tribe. And thus there was an, obviously a, a, the result of that is a certain degree of competition. And there are some episodes of infighting, and we didn't have a team to squelch that out. So there are some episodes that we can read about during, you read the book of, of Judges, it, it concludes with a statement that at that time there was no king in Israel, and there was just chaos, and Ish Hayashar said, every man did what was right in his eyes. There's a certain degree of anarchy. Now, it doesn't mean that there was, you know, anarchy like, uh, uh, you know, just total lawlessness, but there was a combination of uh, the Jewish people having some, uh, I guess, not, I wouldn't say weak leadership, but not, uh, not having a strong political leadership on one hand, and then the external threats, on the other hand, from the warring nations that they were still in, that was, that was still in Israel, uh, that caused uh, that time to be uh, uh, not exactly uh, entirely uh, stable. Now, uh, there was a people that we meet at the time called the Philistines. If you read the, read the book of Judges, you read about Samson battling the Philistines. You know, taking a jaw, donkey's jawbone, and going, battling a hundred Philistines. You know, these were um, these were seafaring people that lived on the coast of Israel. And uh, by the time David and Solomon got around, they're gone. They're gone because either they left or they disbanded or they were slaughtered or whatever. They're gone, and it takes about eight hundred years until the name gets resuscitated. Hadrian, in the second century of the Common Era, is going to rename Israel right, Philistinia after right, evoking a name of a long extinct people. Why? Because he renamed all of Israel. He named, renamed Israel Philistinia. He renamed Jerusalem Elia Capitolina. He even renamed uh, Nablus, the biblical city of Shechem. He named it Neopolis, which means new city. Why? And that's why the Arabs today call it Nablus, because Arabs can't pronounce the P sound. Thus, Neopolis becomes Nablus. If you want to know if your Israeli taxi driver is an Arab or a Jew, you say, say Pelophone, which means say cell phone. If he says Pelophone, then he's Israeli. If he says Belophone, then he's Arab. Simple. Little tip that you get in Musser. <laughs> So that's what happens for 400 years. So the Jewish people are in Israel. They still have uh, some competition, so to speak. There's occasionally inf- in, uh, uh, fighting amongst the Jewish people themselves. But it's, 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 you know, that's it. You know, they kind of settle down. They're in Israel. They're here to stay. 400 years is a long time. We meet a transformational leader in, 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 the, in the person of Samuel, uh, of Samuel, and he is going to anoint the first king of Israel. Anoint. Anoint is a word that we use for pouring oil on someone's head. Mm-hmm. If you read, we read about it a few weeks ago in, in Torah, that when there was the consecration of the, of the tabernacle, they took all the vessels of the tabernacle and the clothing of the, of, the, of the priests and the priests themselves and poured the special potion on it, the special oil on top of them. And that is the process, the ancient process of, of spiritual inauguration. Right, of consecration, of, of preparing something, someone for a spiritual role. And this was the process of anointing all Kohen Gadols, all high priests. Mm-hmm. They had this special oil poured on the head, and also kings. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, the Hebrew word for that is Mashuach, or Mashiach. Mm-hmm. Thus, when King David called Mashiach, Mashiach Hashem, the Mashiach Hashem, it means he's the anointed one of Hashem. It doesn't mean he's the Messiah, this mm-hmm. uh, individual that we're waiting for to bring salvation to the people. 
and in fact, the Christian word of of the Christian word of of, of anointed is Christos. Not the, the Christian, the Greek word of, of of anointed is Christos. Thus, the term Christ comes from the word Christos, which means anointed one. Which all it means is oil was poured on their head. Doesn't mean son of God or that nonsense. Interesting. So Samuel anoints the king and the person of Saul. Now, who is Saul? Saul is six foot five. He's the most handsome man. He's the, the mightiest warrior. He is the greatest Torah scholar. He is the prototypical leader. Charismatic. We find every reference about him that he's shoulder, head and shoulders above the people in every way. And his monarchy, the first monarchy of Israel, think about how worthy he had to be to be selected. Incredible. Yet, his monarchy ended in tragedy after a mere two years. And this is a very important thing we find in Israel at large and in the Jewish people. And that is that the leadership does not necessarily come from the most expected sources. Yes, if you, if you had to create in a factory or in a lab the perfect leader of Israel, it would, Saul would emerge. Yet Israel is not someone that thrives, it's not a land that thrives with perfect leaders. Very interesting. We find this again and again in Jewish history. Even King David, King Solomon. Who was his mom? Anyone knows? Delilah. That's right. No, Bathsheba. Bathsheba, yeah. And, and you say, and King Solomon and King, King David, these are the prototypical leaders. And they seem to have scandalous episodes. Either scandalous heritage or scandalous episodes. And who's the, who, which one of the tribes is the one that is associated with kingship, kingdom? Judah. And what happened with Judah? What's his progeny? His daughter-in-law got dressed up like a prostitute and she seduced him and then... Those twins were born, and that's the four beers of the Messiah and King David. Whoa, scandal. <laughs> and what else do we have in that episode? We have Boaz. Remember Boaz and Ruth? Yeah. Remember that episode? Mm-hmm. Scandal. And this is what we have to show for leadership? I think it's a theme that comes again and again. I think we'll get to Herzl in a second. So you learn about Herzl, and you're like, well, this guy's the leader of the people? <laughs> really? The guy who advocated seven years before the first Zionist Congress that the only solution for the Jewish people in Israel, in Europe, is mass conversion to Christianity. He's going to be the leader of the Jewish people. You're like, what? I didn't know he'd said that. Yes, in Herzl's diaries in 1890, he wrote that the only solution for the Jewish people to be accepted in Europe is mass conversion to Christianity. In fact, he described this parade that would happen where all the Jewish people would be walking with all the great princes of Bavaria, in which they uh, really. This is the guy that's going to lead us to the Promised Land. What? And you know what? He actually did. And it's bizarre. It's striking. It's it's it's. A lot of questions uh, arise from that, but that's, uh, again, again, we see, we see that. Either way, Saul becomes the king. It doesn't last very long. Why not? Saul, uh, Samuel tells them, I want you to slaughter the whole nation of Amalek. And Saul, trying to be, uh, you know, trying to overthink the situation, says, oh, well, I'm not going to kill the women or the animals or even the king. And eventually the king gets away and he uh, lives long enough to bear children, and eventually those descendants are descendants of Haman and Hitler, uh, two uh, infamous, uh, notorious Jew slaughterers. Uh, but that mistake, Saul, Solomon, uh, Samuel, sorry, this is Saul, Sam, Solomon, and Samuel. I'm sorry if I'm getting them confused. But Samuel tells King Saul 
you should know that even though you're the monarch and you have the crown in your head and you have the army at your side and you have the great uh, uh, throne and everything and everyone looks to you as the leader, in God's mind, you're not the leader anymore and it's passed on from you. And that's when David becomes king. Was, was Samuel a judge or a prophet? Or was he both? Both. both. Judges were all prophets. Okay. Oh, okay. Now, uh, Well, prophecy ended about 2,300 years ago. Okay, but um, why? Because we don't have people that are great enough, and we, we're not a nation that's worthy, worthy of it. So it has to be a... a, uh, a, a, a um, I'm sorry? It ended with the destruction of the Second Temple. No, it ended with the building of the Second Temple. Building of the Second Temple. Uh, that's the tail end of, of, of prophecy. Uh, but it has to be, it has to be a, uh, a confluence of a great individual uh, and a great nation. That's worthy of, of having prophecy. Thus, but, it's possible. Go ahead. But, um, wasn't Daniel? He was a prophet, but he wasn't in Israel. Yeah, well, um, Israel meant the Jewish people, not in oh, Israel. Okay. Well, uh, Jacob was a prophet outside of Israel, and Abraham, and Moses never walked into Israel, and he's the greatest prophet that ever lived. Doesn't mean the land of Israel means in Israel the nation. Oh, okay. Yeah. So a lot of prophets outside of Israel. Babylon. Ezra was in Babylon. Nehemiah was in Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel went to Babylon. Right, of course. Uh, it doesn't mean in Israel. Probably means in the land of Israel. So, Samuel goes to Jesse and tells him, one of your kids is the, is the king. And he says, here's this one. No, not this one, not this one, not this one. He goes through all six of his kids and he's like, none of them. But one of your kids is the king, but it's not any one of these. He says, well, I have another kid. He's now in the back. He's a little shepherd. He's a red ginger, little redhead. And he's like, but he's not your guy. He says, oh, he, uh, let me see him. He brings him out here, and he's like, this is the king of Israel. And all his other brothers are like, really, this guy? We used to take him and do like this to him. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are they called? Nuggies. Nuggies. You see him, nuggies. <laughs> uh, and he becomes the king of Israel. He pours oil on his head. David's the king. However, Saul is not happy with this, obviously. And he goes on an entire um, uh, witch hunt. Not a witch hunt, but a hunt to try to eliminate David. So first he tells him, uh, okay, the guy who kills Goliath is he's going to be the king. He's going to marry my daughter, Michal. So David goes and David kills him. And he's like, oh, well, maybe not. And he says, David, listen, I'll give you my daughter Michal if you um, if you go bring me a hundred Philistine foreskins, right? So David comes back with two hundred foreskins. He says, well, I don't know about that. You know, he's trying to do everything he can to try to eliminate David. And David is impervious to any of the plans. But if you read, like, um, if you read Psalms, for example, David, you know, open up almost almost any any uh, any chapter in Psalms, and talk, David always talks about how his enemies are breathing down his neck all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, David had this, you know, this tragic beginning to his monarchy, even though eventually there was stability. Uh, but he he has these these traumatic episodes where. Everyone's trying to kill him, and whoever hides him gets killed, and, and, and he has to hide in caves, and he's always running away from his enemies, and he has opportunities to actually get back at Saul, but he doesn't do it. Like, there's this great episode where David is in a cave, and, and Saul and his men are looking for David, and Saul has to go to the bathroom. So he says, ah, oh, I'm going to go in the cave, and he goes into the same cave that David's in there. And David's right there, but Saul doesn't know that, so what he does is he cuts out a piece of his garment cuts off a little little a little edge of his of his clothing and then after Saul is away he comes out of the cave and says look I could have killed you but I didn't 
And another example where uh, other stories like this, that's the book of Samuel, all these very interesting stories. Uh, in the end, uh, David uh, has, a, has a following and an army, but he tells him, don't touch Saul. Saul is the king of Hashem. We don't touch him, right? Uh, and Saul actually eventually commits suicide. So it's actually tragic. tragic. Saul was cornered by Philistines, so he ended, he ended up committing suicide. Uh, but then when, when David finds out that he committed suicide, David goes, you know, he, he starts bawling, gets very emotional, and, you know, which is an interesting, the whole, the whole story is very interesting. Either way, there was a question there. Yeah, who did you say went to Jesse to, to find? Samuel, the prophet. Okay, okay. That's right. Now, with the rise of King David, there's going to be a tremendous period of calm, of stability, of unity, of greatness amongst the people. David is the one who's going to complete the conquest of Israel. David is the one who's going to capture Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the last, the last stronghold of, of those seven nations. He captures Jerusalem. And he doesn't actually build a temple. That's going to be reserved for Solomon. He moves the capital from Hebron, from Hebron to Jerusalem. And he has uh, the reign of uh, 40 years. Uh, but his reign is marked with tremendous prosperity, stability, and peace. And in fact, his son, Solomon, uh, who, by the way, assumed the kingdom at the age of 12. Think about that. Was that a nice bar mitzvah present? Right? Uh, he, but he becomes king of the And he also lasts for 40 years until he dies at the age of 52. And these 80 years marked the high point of Jewish life in Israel. Times of David and, 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 and Solomon. And in fact, the Talmud says that it was so good that they didn't accept any converts. No, no converts. Why is that? Because they were worried that there's going to be insincere conversion because it's so good for the Jews. They have everything. They have righteous leadership. They have uh, prosperity. They have peace. They have spiritual, physical, material, everything you want. Everything you, want, you could possibly want. They have no, no enemies. They have secure borders. They have everything. So, of course, everyone wants to jump, jump on board. That's the time that they don't accept anything, which is interesting. It's an interesting kind of reflection of, of, of what the, how good it was for the Jews uh, at that time. Uh, Solomon builds the temple. I don't think I'm going to have to do this in an hour. But Solomon builds the <laughs> temple. Uh, and uh, from then on, a very important point, from then on, from the time of David uh, till today, if someone's going to be a king of Israel, and to be a legitimate king of Israel, they have to be born from the Davidic line. Right? They have to be descendants, direct descendants of King David via Solomon. So all the leaders, all the kings that came afterwards were direct descendants of King David. In fact, all the presidents of the Sanhedrin, once the kingdom, once the monarchy ended, and then the leadership was via the Sanhedrin, or the Supreme Court, all the presidents of the Sanhedrin were also direct descendants of King David, all the way into the uh, fifth century of the Common Era. So for hundreds, uh, it, more than that, I guess I would say uh, that would be about uh, 1,300 years, the leader of the people, um, more or less, there were some lapses, of course, but the leader of the people for that long a period of time is going to be a direct son of King David. By the way, this uh, the idea of a Messiah is someone who's going to reestablish that Davidic line mm-hmm. and it had to be also direct descendant of King David. Thus, if someone is a Kohen, they are disqualified and ineligible for becoming Messiah. It's a good question. How do you know that? You know, there's a lot of things. That, there's a lot of things that we don't know about about what's going to happen 
in fulfilling the messianic uh, prophecies. Um, however, we are a lot closer than we could we've ever been. But how would we know that the DNA is chromosomes? Well, yeah, you you wouldn't prove it via DNA. The question is how you would prove it. Uh, you might not be able to prove it. It might be kind of self self born out of the other circumstances. Uh, but you know, like if Messiah is going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, we're fairly close. You know. <laughs> The six million Jews living in Israel. If Messiah is going to bring the Jewish people back to Israel, well, we have a very, he has a very good head start. You know, so uh, how exactly is it, is it going to be someone who, who's going to prove their ancestry? I, I don't think that it's about that. I think, you know, the other fulfilling, fulfilling all the other requirements of what Messiah needs to do on the checklist, like if they do all that, I think we should make a fair guess. You know, but you couldn't prove the DNA of the Kohen. That's right. You can't, well, but even that, if you came to, uh, if you came to a synagogue and said, "Listen, I have no tradition that my dad was a Cohen or grandfather, but I have some DNA," if you pull out a long string of you know C's and G's, and you know, they'll say, "Sorry, that's inadmissible," you know. So the question is, what's admissible at, in actual court of law? Someone to prove they're a Cohen via DNA it doesn't work like that, you know. Uh, so it's actually a nice. Uh, vignette about Jewish life is that all Kohens today are direct descendants of the same guy about 106 generations ago. So it's cool the fact that it's actually substantiated by science yeah. and by uh, physical, you know, material evidence that they are direct descendants on their kind of Y chromosome, direct descendants from the same guy. Mm-hmm. All people that came to, and the people that are not Kohens do not have that same guy in their ancestry. So it's interesting but it's actually not, uh, it's not going to, pr- it means if you prove it, that you share some genetic code with a coin, they won't let you get the aliyah for coin. That's not enough, you know. If, if you find your grandfather's uh, uh, cemetery on, on his uh, gravestone that it has something like this, a picture like this of the coin, and it says, Shmeral Beryl HaKohen, you know, and this is you, and you look at your dad's suba or whatever, and it says hakohen. Well, that's that's good. <laughs> you know, that's more that's kind of evidence that actually holds up uh, uh, practically. That's pretty interesting. What? That you need the the Judaic content, not the genes. Yeah, but per well, se. well yeah. it's a relatively new question because True. Yeah, if you sure. were if your dad was a kohen, you would know that. Yeah. Uh, it's almost yeah. it's almost impossible. We only, even today, where there's been about a two hundred year. Um, uh, weakness, I would say, in Jewish affiliation. Mm-hmm. Still, people who are Cohen's know that no, they're Cohen's. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why would they know it? Because their name, either the name is Cohen, that might help, right. uh, <laughs> or the fact that they know, yeah, we're sure. Jewish and mm-hmm. we're Cohen's. It doesn't mean that we observe anything. No. It's something that you know uh, if, if you're it's a Cohen. It's passed on because yeah. it's always passed on. Yeah, it's, 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 it's also a matter of pride. You're like, you know, we're yeah. Cohen's and you guys are not. <laughs> you know, and I'm one of those you guys. Uh, so yes. Uh, either way, um, so this uh, Davidic line of royalty and Messiah is very important, especially for a little bit later on. We'll see that there's going to be some teams of Israel that are not legitimate teams. Uh, in fact, the Hasmoneans that we all know from the Hanukkah story, uh, they captured Israel, as we know. That's the story, right? They captured Israel from the Assyrian Greeks that were uh, controlling the land at the time. And they became kings of Israel for 100 years, in fact, 99 to be precise. Uh, from the year 1, uh, I think it was 166 before the Common Era to 67 before the Common Era. 
Uh, and they became teens, and they labeled themselves teens, even though they were coins. You can't be a teen and a coin at the same time, because you're not the right descendants of King David. <laughs> you just you just, you just can't. Uh, and that's why the Jewish, there was a lot of tension at the time, because they were claiming that they were teens, yet the populace, they knew that they weren't kings. Uh, so you have someone by the name of, by the way, you know, and they also became, they were Hellenists, so they were Jews, very, very progressive Jews, uh, that weren't so into the whole observance thing. Which is also bizarre when you have a very observant populace uh, constituency, and you have the leader who is also the kohen gadol, also the high priest and the king, and clearly not demonstrating that uh, that keen of attention or dedication to tradition. There's going to be tension. So there's this great episode uh, with one of the kings. His name was Alexander Yanai. Doesn't sound like a very Jewish name, you know, uh, and he. He was the king and the high priest, and he made a mockery of, of Jewish tradition in front of everyone on the holiday of Sukkot. So the people, they everyone simultaneously took their etrog and started pelting him with etrog. They almost killed him. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's a crazy episode. Um, <laughs> it's almost two thousand years ago, um, but it's uh, essentially sorry, it's more than two thousand years ago, but 2,100 years ago. Uh, but that's kind of dem- demonstrative of what happens when you have someone who makes a departure from the way things ought to be, and the nation is not happy with it. Yeah. It creates this this tension and friction. Rabbi, where yes, you, go ahead. Where do you learn this stuff? Huh? Where would you Where would you find something? That story of uh, of the etrog. Yeah. Uh, well, it is. I did check. It's on. It's on Wikipedia. It is. Uh, but it's it's a it's a famous famous Jewish story about Alexander Yanai. Um, it's in every Jewish history book. Probably. Um, so that's where you would learn it. Read Jewish history books. Either way, uh, Solomon dies at the age of uh, 52, like we mentioned. And at that time, there was the first major civil war amongst the Jewish people. And as we mentioned, for us to live peacefully in Israel, it's all predicated on certain terms, the terms and conditions to that. And we, this, the death of Solomon and the tension that arose now, and eventually the secession of the kingdom in the north versus the kingdom in the south, that quickly spiraled out of control. And a hundred years later, we find the one a major, major downfall of a massive uh, segment of, of of the Jewish people in Israel. Uh, and, and, you know, as Jews, we say, when we look back, especially on the Jewish response, this has always been, yes, you came to Israel, fantastic. However, there are conditions. And if you uh, renege on your part of the deal, then the land will kick you out. And the fact that the land kicked them out is just a fulfillment of what we knew what was happening. We, we should have known it was coming. It's written in the book, it's clear. So uh, what happened was, is uh, uh, Solomon's son, he became king. His name was... Rechavam, and he made a few uh, bad decisions uh, to isolate certain parts of the community, especially the kingdom, the community of the north. So, if you have Israel and you have the center of operations and the kingdom and the capital in in Jerusalem, and you have the temple in Jerusalem, and then you have all the other Jews living in Israel, so there's going to be a divide between the people, and uh, instead of courting the people that may feel a little bit disaffected from the leadership he decided to enact a punitive tax on the people of the north. And they said, screw it, we're, we're starting our own, our own kingdom. 
So the northern tribes seceded, and they formed the kingdom of Israel. And the southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah. And for the next hundred and some odd years, there's going to be parallel kingdoms where you have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. It was, well, well, the land is called a variety of things. It's either called Israel, Eretz Israel, land of Israel, or Canaan. It was okay. called Canaan at the time as well. When, when, um, when King David was ruling, what was it called? Uh, that's a good question. It might have already been called the land of Israel. Okay. Uh, it might have been called Judah. I don't think it was called Canaan anymore. You mean Canaan? Yeah, Canaan. yeah, Canaan is, they say, the Hebrew kingdom, right? Um, either way, uh, there is going to be this divide. So then you have the southern kingdom becomes the kingdom of, of Judah, like we mentioned, under the leadership of Rechavam. And then the northern kingdom is going to become the northern kingdom of Israel under the leadership of a fellow by the name of Yeravam, which is very confusing. Jerusalem was in the southern? Jerusalem was in the south, that's right. So you have Yeravam and Rechavam. Back again. Uh, but this guy, this guy, Yeravam, the northern kingdom, he is one of the great villains in Jewish history. Because mm-hmm. he had someone, he was someone who had so much potential for greatness, yet he led an entire swath of the Jewish people into idolatry. What happened? You have two kingdoms now. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And you have a temple in the southern kingdom of Judah, in Jerusalem. Now, we know, according to Jewish law, that every, every, every year, three times, there's a mitzvah to go make a pilgrimage to the temple. And Yeravam, in the north, he realized that if all the people, they make the pilgrimage to Israel, you know, to Jerusalem, and they see what's happening in the southern kingdom, and then they'll say, We're not, we don't like this whole secession, we want to reunite. So he sealed the borders, and he says, oh, you want a temple? I'll build you a temple. No problem. Just one little catch. It's not going to be a temple to God. It's going to be a temple to idolatry, to Baal. So he led the people, essentially, into idolatry. And in fact, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, there were so, much, so many efforts made to try to you know, court him back. And, because he, he was someone who was a great Torah scholar. He had the potential. But he had such a probably a mixture of arrogance uh, plus, um, I guess, this desire for power that corrupted him. You know, so he was a prophet, in fact. Great, great Jewish leader, great potential. But his actions belied his, his potential. Uh, so there's this great story in the Talmud that says that, uh, that, that the Almighty tells, uh, tells Yeravim, he says, I want you to repent, bring the Jewish people back, reunite it, and you, me, and King David will take strolls in, in Olam Abba. So what does he ask him? So what does your reverend says, well, who's walking first? Am I, am I first in line or David's first in line? So he says, David's first in line. He says, okay, not interested. And in fact, Yeravam, Yeravam Ben Avot, as he's, is that's his name, Yeravam Ben Avot, he is one of the four people that we have in Jewish writings, in the Mishnah, that says hey, he has no portion of the world to come. He lost his portion of the world to come. Very, very, very tragic. Uh, that was the, from the Northern Kingdom, right? Yes, yes. The what? The two names sound so alike. I can't yeah, one's Yeravim, one's Rechavim. So um, what's going to be now for the next, uh, I don't know exactly the numbers, I think it's to be about 150 years, 
there's going to be uh, two concurrent kingdoms. Uh, and you're going to have the northern kingdom of Israel that is descending the death spiral into idolatry, worse and worse and worse. That's where you meet, by the way, Elijah. You know, Elijah, and he's going to Mount Carmel. And he has his face off with the, with the, with the prophets of Baal. You ever read about that? Elijah is the prophet, right? And he's, he's doing everything he can. He's investing everything to try to bring the Jewish people back to Torah and to God. And he has this, this face-off with the prophets of the idol. And he says, okay, you know, let's go to Mount Carmel, a mountain in front of everyone, bring all the people there. And you'll try to bring a sacrifice, and I'll try to bring a sacrifice. Let's see who's more impressive. And he gets, he rallies the troops, and the, everyone's there, everyone's watching, and the people, the, the, the idolaters are on the side, and everything they're doing is not working. And Elijah prays on Mount Carmel, and this massive fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifices. And the people are blown. They're blown away. And then the next day, Jezebel, if you know the name Jezebel, you heard that name, Jezebel? She was the queen, and she, Jezebel, sorry. Uh, uh, So she's the queen, and she says, well, actually, no, I'm not going to let this continue. And in fact, Elijah, if I find you, I'll kill you. So like, you know, the leadership kind of drew the people towards idolatry and repelled any effort to try to bring them back. Uh, And eventually, about, I think it's 180 years later, uh, the people were captured. And the preeminent uh, empire at the time, the first of many empires that we'll meet, uh, is the Assyrian Empire, uh, under the leadership of Sancheirib. And Sancheirib is the one who captures the northern kingdom of Israel, totally decimates them. He sends whatever's left, uh, refugees, he, re- 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 he repopulates them. Southern kingdom still intact. Southern kingdom still intact, okay. he, right? But his method of, of conquest, mm-hmm. Sancherib's, was conquest and relocate. Mm-hmm. So he would take uh, a conquer a nation. That was the method of the Assyrian Empire. They would conquer a nation, and they would conquer another nation, and then they would just swap the people. Thus, everyone, oh. they would mix all the people around, and then your people are out of their environment, they're not going to rebel. You know, but if you keep people in their environment, just with new leadership, then they're more uh, likely to rebel. So he takes the northern kingdom of Israel, whatever's left of them, and he moves them out. And that's known, by the way, if you ever heard the term 10 lost tribes. Yeah. Have you ever heard that? That is from where it started. The northern kingdom of Israel, those tribes, we don't know where they are. They're lost. They were, they were moved away from Sancheirib. They were so distant from Torah, Torah already. Uh, and they're gone. We don't know where they are. There's many different people claiming to be part of the Ten Lost Tribes. And it's a very tragic uh, conclusion to what could have been something so fantastic. Uh, but I th- we look at this as an example of what, uh, what happens in Israel specifically when things like this uh, are undertaken. You know, when there's civil war, secession, infighting, idolatry. Well, you're not going to last that long. You've given opportunities to repent and come back, and if you rebuff those, and we know that every single one of the kings of northern, uh, northern kingdom of Israel, every single one of them was an idolater. Every single last one of them. And they're gone. Those people are gone, and they're not part of the Jewish people. And the ten lost tribes followed them? No, that's the ten lost tribes. Were they followed the idolatry, is what I'm asking? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. It, it permeated. That's why they were punished. That's the punishment. They're yeah. never coming back. Right, they're gone. Uh, they've been they're gone, gone for a long, long time. 
Even Mashiach comes. Uh, the, 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 the Mishnah has a debate. Are they coming back when Mashiach comes or not? But it, most likely they're not coming back. And by the way, the people that, that, the people that fill their void, like we said, if you reallocate people, yeah. so the, those are the Samaritans. So if you ever hear the Samaritans and the, and the terrible fighting or the terrible... Uh, well, yes. The, those are the people that moved in in their stead, okay. and they were living in Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had a lot of interactions with the Samaritans, and some of them converted, but we don't know if they converted or not. It's, it's always up in the air when you talk about the Samaritans, because they may be Jewish, maybe they're not Jewish. It was a huge headache that, 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 that happened to, mm-hmm. to, the, to the population. Those are the ones that replaced uh, the, 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 the northern kingdom of Israel. Either way, Sancheirib, uh, the leader of the Assyrians, he moved on to the southern kingdom of Judah. Oh. And he, in fact, he laid siege to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, as we may well know, is one of the uh, great cities to, to, uh, to survive a siege. Right? Jerusalem has, is, a, is, a, is a mountain. So it has natural defenses on almost all sides. It had. It always had these massive walls. The walls that are surrounding the old city of Jerusalem today are 16th century Ottoman walls. But it, it had walls, uh, and it was almost. And it had water, good water supply. Uh, it was self-sustaining. So all the Jews today are basically from the tribe of Judea. Well, that's why we're called Jews and Levites and Levites. Yeah. Right, but but the, you know it wasn't at that time already. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know the, the people had gotten mixed up already, so we have we, we're a mix of all all the tribes, uh, because the you know the the tribal seclusion that already uh, ended. Uh, but the town tribe is, is a term for those lost Jews, at large. Uh, now Sancheirib, so he he um, surrounded Jerusalem, and in fact we actually have today. Uh, if you go to the uh, British Museum, uh, they have lots and lots and lots of archives from Sancheirib. And in fact, there's even one of them where he's gloating about his destroying of the northern kingdom of Israel, and then his predictions of how he's going to stamp out the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says, and I have them surrounded, and I have them by their throats. I got them. But we know that they didn't get them. Nowhere in the accounting of Sanchez does say, oh, I actually captured them. Why? Because they were, uh, there was a plague that knocked out the, uh, the, the Assyrian uh, army and the southern kingdom of Judah survived. Mm-hmm. Like you said, the Jews that we have today, are, the, the, the Jewish remnant that we have today, are from the southern kingdom of Judah. Either way, um, it looks like we're not going to make it in, in yeah. one session. I'm actually scheduled next week here, so I was thinking <laughs> we, could, oh, yeah. we, we yeah. could do part two yeah. next week. Sounds mm-hmm. good. Uh, cool. And uh, yes, it's interesting. Well, so we'll start mm-hmm. from Sancheirib and what happens mm-hmm. uh, when we meet the next uh, great empire that's going to be the Babylonians. Okay. So we see the, the we're going to go from the Assyrians to the, Babylonians, to the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the various offshoots of the Greeks, which is the the Macedonian Greeks and the Ptolemaic Greeks and the Assyrian Greeks. Then we'll meet the Romans, of course, the unforgettable ones, and the Byzantines. And then we'll skip a couple of hundreds of years. And we'll talk about the Ottomans as well, and eventually the British mandate in well, 1917. I thought you would do this in an hour. I have done it before in an hour. <laughs> but have. like zero questions and like skipping over half the details. <laughs> gotta, yeah, but no, it wouldn't zero be interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, yes, it's, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be as interesting. So. Yeah, you, you've got to take into consideration the coming. 
That's Red right. Pill. Yeah, you guys, you guys actually like, yeah. you know, like the information, you want to chew it over. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's why it makes sense. So now we have something planned for next week, okay? Absolutely. Perfect. Yeah. Good. Perfect. Yeah. Straight, guys. Okay. Love Thank, it. You. Thank you. Thank you.